Well, there's a few things that are sure in life that are going to happen, right? What's a few of them? We looked at one thing last week, death, right? And we want to make sure we're ready for that. That will happen. The other is taxes, right? We all love that. Um, Some of us might be like, I'd rather die. No, just kidding. (laughs) Totally playing. Okay. Uh, Taxes are tough. But anyway, a third thing is conflict, right? I mean, conflict is real, right? Conflict is all around. All of us are going to face some sort of conflict at times. Whether we're in here this morning or a middle school student, we're going to face conflict. And so the Bible directs us, even as students, how to handle conflict. We're in high school, we're in college, we're, we're singles, we're married people in here, uh, adult, adults. No matter where we're at in the spectrum, we will face conflict in life. Now, many of us were, had different experiences growing up when it comes to conflict and how to handle it. Uh, maybe some just took the conflicts of life and just swept it under the rug and didn't deal with it. Uh, some, when conflict maybe arose, you would sit at the table and everybody would just be quiet and it never would be talked about, just be avoided. Or maybe you were one of those houses where, man, you dealt with conflict, you sat around the table, you talked about it, you yelled, you screamed, I don't know, whatever it looked like, but, but conflict was handled in some maybe uh, outward form in some way. But maybe you handled conflict biblically. Maybe you're like this morning, no, no, we handled it biblically. In fact, some of the things we'll read this morning, you're like, no, that's how we handled it. The point is, we, we all have seen different ways to handle it. We've all maybe lived in houses where uh, growing up, it was handled differently. The, the point is, we all uh, have different ideas of how it should go when we are offended or even sinned against this morning. And so this morning, Jesus addresses that on how we are to handle uh, conflict and how do we handle when someone sins directly against us, how we're offended um, and how do we handle that for the glory of God? How do we do that in a way that pleases God and honors God? There's a way to do it that does. And so this morning we are going to see that. So Jesus is going to talk to his disciples. And he is going to direct specifically these believers on issues of temptation, on issues of sin, and when those things occur to us. But also he's going to address us. When it comes to our own personal lives, to temptation and sin, and what do we do? And so there's a lot of things packed into this verse this morning. And ultimately it comes down to, I believe, as we look at this text, how we see God. Ultimately, how we see Jesus is in view this morning. How do you see him, I think, impacts how we treat this. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning as we look at the first three verses is that you and I are to guard our own lives against temptation and sin. You and I are to guard our own life against temptation and sin. So look at the first three verses this morning. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, it is inevitable, meaning it is bound to happen that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone 
were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And then he says at the beginning of verse 3, be on your guard. Jesus is directing this to the disciples. He tells them first that temptation to sin are sure to come. Temptation is sure to come. If you look at verse 1, Jesus uses the phrase stumbling blocks. What's What's a stumbling block? It's something you trip over, right? It's something that will cause you to fall. And so what is he talking about? There are things in life all around us during the day. No matter where we're at, whether it's on the computer, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's in the car, whether it's at home, whether it's watching TV, you name it as we're with other people, depending where we're at, different places, there are going to be things that will try to trip us up when it comes to living for God's will and living in a way that pleases God. There are going to be things that try to make us fall. They're out there. There are going to be things in this world, people. There are going to be even our own flesh that seek to do things like lure us away and entice us to sin. Things that are like a bait hanging out there and wanting us just to dive right in, take a bite. That's what temptation is. In fact, temptation and sin, they're different, right? Temptation is the enticement that seeks to lead someone into sin, and we all are tempted in many different ways throughout the day. In fact, Jesus was also tempted. We see that in Matthew chapter four, when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights being tempted by Satan. So he faced temptation. The only difference between Jesus and you and I when it comes to temptation is the Bible says in Hebrews 4.15, Jesus has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet he's without sin. He's never sinned. He's perfect. He's fled that temptation. He fought it off with what? The word of God. He's a great example to us of how to do that. What is sin, though? Because temptation is enticing us to sin, and so sin is the issue, is the problem here that we all have fallen into, that rebellion we talked about even at the beginning of the service. Sin is a deed, it's a motive that breaks the law of God, that goes against the commands in the word and the will of God. It is also the other side of that, of not doing something we should do. There's a lot of things on, in God's word that we're commanded to do, yet we don't do. And so you got this sin of commission and the sin of omission. And what is it? it it's an offense against God. We, when we sin, we sin against God. We also, at times, sin against other people as well. So we all will be tempted to sin every day. And to sin Uh, against God and and others, Jesus says this, be on your guard. Pay attention to your life. He says in another place in Luke chapter 21, verse 34, be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation, wasteful living, and drunkenness, and the worries of life. Paul tells uh, his young pastor friend, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee Flee now from your youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, right living. Pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace with those who call on the Lord from a what? A pure heart. 
That's what God wants us to have. God wants us to have a pure heart and a pure life, a life that is lived after his ways, his commands, according to his will, and a life that pleases him. So we're to fight temptation, fight sin, say no to it, and kill it, right? Put it to death. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he, if you remember, he, he says, when he gets up every day, he says, every day I die, right? I die to sin. And he wants to put that sin to death because every day the temptation is before us. So he tells us first that temptation to sin is sure to come. It's sure to come, but we gotta be on guard. The second thing is, in these first three verses, is we're not to be a source of temptation. We're not to be a source of temptation that leads others to sin. So we're not just to be on guard on our own lives against temptation and sin, but also Jesus tells us not to be a source by which temptation goes through to other people to tempt them to sin. And he says to those who do, woe, right? Look at verse 2. Woe to him through whom temptations to sin come through. So what's he saying there? Real simply, he's saying, do not be an agent of Satan. Okay? God is not a God who, who tempts, so where does temptation comes from? It comes from the enemy. And so the, the enemy loves to use other people as sources of temptation to lead others into sin. So do not become a source of that. And he says, to those who do, Jesus says in verse 2, woe. What is woe, right? If you look at the word woe throughout the Old Testament, it's, it's a word of judgment. And he says it a lot in the Old Testament, God does. Woe is a word of judgment. And so judgment upon those who lead others into temptation and sin. And he says in verse 2, it would be better for him to what? If a millstone, what's a millstone? It's a heavy, large stone that is in the upper part of a, a grinding mill, and it was heavy. And he says it would be better for that person if that stone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And what a gruesome scene Jesus used. It's gruesome. Of this drowning. He says it would be better for that to happen than you to cause a little one to sin and stumble. Why does Jesus use such graphic language? He uses such graphic language because he wants us to understand the effects of temptation and sin. It's devastating. It's devastating. And he says to, to those who are part of that, who lead others into it, it's better for you to be tossed in the sea than for you to do that. Wow. What that means is, is he takes serious temptation and sin. And for his disciples, the church, believers, he takes serious, he wants us to take serious as well, our holiness and our purity and how we live before others. Now, who are these little ones? He, he says, hey, be careful that you don't cause these little ones to stumble. Who are these little ones? I think in the text, if you look in the context, I think the application is broad, but I think if you look in the context, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus was talking with 
tax collectors. He was talking with sinners. He was talking about those who um, were the, the least of these in the community. They, they were viewed as um, outcasts, They're the, the poor, the sick, the lame. And they were those that uh, religious people had nothing to do with. The Jews had nothing to do with. But Jesus ate with them, hung out with them. He taught them the word of God. And so I think what's happening here is you see these coming uh, up to the kingdom, maybe not quite into the kingdom yet, um, still kicking the tires of what it means to follow Jesus. And then I think you have those who have come into the kingdom. And so I think there, present with Jesus, are sinners, tax collectors. And so I believe in the context, what's going on here, is he's pointing out these tax collectors, these sinners to the disciples. And he's saying, listen, it it would be better for you to be in the sea with this big stone around your neck than to cause these guys and these people around here who are coming into the kingdom, it'd be better for you to drown in the sea than to cause them to stumble into sin. So I think he has them in mind. So who are they? They're they're those who are not mature in the faith. They're they're new believers. They, They don't know what the disciples know. They don't know what everything that you know that's in the Bible yet. And so there's, man, they're still trying to figure this thing out. And so Jesus said, hey, man, take care when it comes to those new to the kingdom and those who are just kicking the tires. Make sure you don't lead them into temptation or sin. What could this temptation or sin be? It could be false teaching. It could be immorality. Uh, it could be a, a, a gamut of things. It could be many things. He says, be careful, be on guard that you do not lead them into temptation or sin. Now, the application of this carries with it a wide, broad uh, group of people. Be careful that you don't sin against, obviously, children, obviously, and uh, as well, um, different people, many different people. The idea is do not lead others into temptation or sin, but especially those that are kicking the tires of faith and new to the kingdom. So don't be that source of temptation. Don't be that source of sin. So guard your life. Now, here's the question. What do we do if we do sin? What do we do if we do sin? Everything that Jesus has said here, be on guard, but yet we sin. Because we're going to do that. The Bible says all of sin. All falls short of the glory of God. We will sin. So what do we do? And then what do we do if we lead others into sin Okay, and then what do we do if we're sinned against? How do we handle that? So look at verses three through four. Look at the last part of three. He says, if your brother sins, so who's your brother? Your, your fellow believer, your fellow disciple, your, your Christian friend, brother or sister in the faith. If they sin, rebuke them. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So there's a lot of things here in these two verses. He says, first, if you're sinned against, let's tackle that, by a fellow Christian, what do you do? So the first thing he tells us to do is to rebuke them, to rebuke the one who has sinned against you. What is the idea of rebuking? It is confronting, okay? Uh, it is admonishing someone, going to them, talking to them about what they have done to sin against you, to, to confront them. So the idea is you don't talk about them, 
right, to other people or gossip to others about them. But instead, what do you do? You confront them. So before you talk to God about it, you pray. Maybe there's going to be times where you seek wise counsel on how to handle something. I mean, that's, that's definitely prudent in this case as well. But you talk to the Lord, and then you go talk to them face-to-face, right? I think face-to-face is how this has to be handled. Not email, okay? Not text, not a private message. This kind of stuff that Jesus is talking about is face-to-face, right? And how many of us in here are just sitting there going, amen? I didn't hear any, but I thought under your breath, I, saw, I thought I heard one person go, amen, oh yeah, this is great. Okay, this is not stuff we just walk in and go, oh, wow. Man, this is hard. This is, everything he's saying here is, is not stuff that naturally we would just sit and go, I can't wait to get up in the morning and add this to my to-do list. I mean, it's just, I just can't wait to calendar this stuff. This is going to be so much fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, right? But, but this is significant. It's vital. It's vital. It's vital. So he says rebuke, go to them face to face, talk to them about how they sin against you. And here's the goal, you seek by grace, and grace is key here. You've got to go at it full of grace and love. You've got to look at Jesus as your example. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus knows what it means to be sinned against, right? And so you've got to look to him, and you look at his grace and his compassion, and that's how you handle it, right? And the, the goal is you seek grace to kill the sin, not the relationship. Not the relationship. It's not the goal. And now it doesn't mean that the relationship won't be killed or changed or, or, or whatever. But that's the goal is to kill the sin, not the relationship. There's going to be times and things like this. I do want to address, especially in the sensitivity of our society right now, there may be times where in criminal situations it requires a witness to come with you um, and it takes maybe some more an attention and things like this when obviously confronting. Um, but the thing I think that Jesus is addressing here is, it, is he's basically saying don't avoid this because I think that's naturally what we want to do. We just want to avoid and, and we hold on to it. So Jesus tells his followers not to avoid but to confront and when you do, I think do it with a heart of love. Then the next thing here, second, if the fellow Christian who sinned against you says they are sorry, right, and seeks to make things right, the idea of repentance here, what are we to do? We're to forgive. We're to forgive them. Now, why are we to forgive, though, right? I mean, some people might honestly ask that in their heart, why do I need to forgive them? Well, here's why. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you don't forgive others then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is this. Hey, listen, if we are forgiven by the Father through Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with Christ, um, then we should forgive others as he has forgiven us. And so what does that mean? It's really not an option. Really not an option. Sometimes... This means I, I'm going to go to somebody else practically. And I'm going to tell them, hey, listen, you've offended me or you've sinned against me in this way, and, and I want to forgive you. Maybe it begins that way. 
But what do we see in this text? It, it takes one to repent, right? We might even go a little bit before that. It takes one to, to rebuke and go to them. It takes one to repent. It takes one to forgive. But it takes two to reconcile, right? It takes two to reconcile. So that's kind of the whole process in mind here. But Paul, remember what Paul says? And so I want you to hear this because I think what he's saying to the disciples is say, listen, you have to be responsible for this. This falls on you. If you've been sinned against, you rebuke, you go to them, and, and you're, you're responsible for that first part, and then you're responsible if they repent to forgive. And Paul says in Romans 12, 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so do all that you can. According to this text, I mean, you can't make someone repent, right? But you can confront, and then if they repent, you can forgive. And so you have to do all that you can to live at peace with all men. Now, Romans 12, 19 is the very next verse. And too often what happens, maybe with us, definitely in our culture, in our society, uh, it goes a different direction. Instead of seeking a heart of forgiveness and willing to forgive someone, we want revenge. We want revenge. That's why Paul says what he does. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. God. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. That's difficult, though, because when somebody hurts us, right? I mean, the first thing I know, I know for me a lot of times, and this happens a lot of times, like in the car. Like, I'm real sensitive in the car. Like, you jack with me in the car, and I mean, just everything starts rising, and I don't know why. I, I really don't know why, and um, I mean, I like the horn. The horn's cool, right? And I, there are times where I, just, I, don't, I don't get it, man. And I just, I fight against that in the car a lot of time. It's, it's difficult. And, there's, and, and we do that in different realms and different aspects of life where we, we, when somebody offends us, sins against us or does something against us, we want to seek revenge. It just rises up. And that's, I mean, that's just how it rolls, right? We don't like it. The Bible says, do not take revenge. So we gotta kill that temptation, right? We gotta say no to that. And we gotta pray, God, give me a heart of love to handle this, right? So if they repent in this process of you confronting them, they repent, what does it say? Forgive them, right? What does it mean? Forgive them. It means to let go of your right to judge them and leave now it in God's hands. Right? I think real simply, that's what it means. You're saying, you know what? I'm not going to hold on to the right anymore to judge them. But I'm now going to leave this into God's hands. And I'm going to show them compassion in this area. So we either forgive and give it over to the Lord or something else happens. We become bitter and we hold on to it and it controls us. Jesus says here, in 17.4, if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. We read that and that's probably where we're like, whoa. So what is forgiveness? Let me just give you just some ideas and some thoughts on this. Just in the totality of scripture and the idea of maybe what Jesus is speaking of here and what he's also not saying, okay? 
Because forgiveness is not denying. You don't see the denying of sin. It's not the ignoring of sin. It's not the approving of sin. It's not the diminishing of sin. Definitely not. I mean, remember what he said in verse 2, okay? So it's none of that. It's also not enabling either. Verse, verse 4 does, does not leave room for that. It's not the enablement of another just to continue to do what they're doing, all right? Because what's present? Repentance. Repentance. It's also not forgetting, and I know I've said this before, but man, there's a lot of times in just the Christian culture, sayings just sound good to people, and they make bumper stickers and t-shirts out of them and stuff, and they just sell. But forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting, right? It's not. Um, Think about this, in Hebrews 12, remember what it says about God? It says that God remembers our sin no more. Does it mean that God just forgets our sin, like he automatically just has amnesia uh, or something about our sin and just kind of completely forgets about it? I don't think that's the idea, right? No, the, the idea is that God chooses not to interact with us based upon our sin, but instead by his grace he interacts with us as believers in Jesus. That's how he now interacts with us in. And so I think it's the same way with, with us. Our, our identity is based on Jesus, not our sin. Praise the Lord. And so we handle forgiveness the same way. It doesn't necessarily mean we just automatically forget the sin. And I think sometimes that puts pressure on people when it comes to forgiveness that they just got to forget about it. I don't think that's the case. It means we're choosing, just like God has with us, to interact with someone based on grace. Okay? And that's how we're going to interact with them. Um. Forgiveness is also not the idea of no longer feeling the pain of sin, of just checking out on your emotions and dying emotionally and just saying, I'm just going to check out for this. No, I mean, the reality of some things, of offenses against us and sin, um, man, they affect us. They cause us to grieve for many different reasons, and rightfully so. That, that's why when you read verses like in Revelation, there's a few times, like in Revelation 21, verse 4, it says that Jesus, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, the, the kingdom, what's going to happen? He's going to wipe away all our tears from this earth, all the grieving, okay? And so forgiving doesn't just necessarily mean that we stop grieving and we're stop, you know, we just check out emotionally over things. I mean, that's not the idea either. And so we've got to be careful with the idea of what forgiveness looks like. Forgiveness is also not necessarily a one-time event. It, it may mean that you and I have to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm struggling still with this. Even though I have forgiven this person, I'm still struggling with this. And you, you go back to the Lord and you say, Lord, help me to continue to forgive, to forgive. Um, I, I also believe forgiveness is not full reconciliation. We talked a lot, a lot about this earlier, or a little bit about this earlier. Forgiveness is not full reconciliation of a relationship to its previous state. Because sometimes what does it involve? It involves slowly regaining trust. And so sometimes the relationship has to go through that. It may be so damaging that it takes time. It takes time. And I've seen that. I've seen that word just beautifully as, as both... Uh, rebuke, rebuke, excuse me, repent, and then forgive, and just over time build trust. And sometimes that's a process it has to go to. It also means this. Forgiveness is not object, objecting to justice. Okay? I think that's significant. It doesn't mean saying I'm sorry and when it's needed, not calling the police. Right? 
doesn't mean you have to, but it doesn't mean you can't. So forgiveness is not objecting to justice, and I, and I think that's significant as, as well. So forgiveness, we are to forgive. That means we are choosing to interact with someone based on grace, okay? Not out of revenge or any other way, but out of grace. Second, if you're the one who sins, the sins against another, what do we do? Because sometimes we're the problem, right? We don't like to admit that. That's hard, but sometimes we are the problem. So what do we do? This text says repent. That's not a word that we use often, right? It's not in our vocabulary often, but it's a, it's a biblical term. It's significant. And so we repent to God. We repent when it comes to other people that we've sinned against. Um, so repentance is not only saying you're sorry, but it's doing all we can to make things right. Okay? Repentance is not merely getting caught, but it's coming clean. Repentance is not denying our sin, nor diminishing our sin, nor managing our sin. Repentance is also not putting the blame of our sin on someone else, right? I mean, you could look at the garden and look at Adam, right? Remember, he says, God, why did you give me Eve, <laughs> right? I mean, this, that's, that's, that's not repentance. So repentance is not about someone else's sin. Repentance is not merely feeling bad about what you did. That's, that's, that's sorrow, and that can be a very godly thing over what you did. You betcha. But repentance is about changing, right? It's having a change of heart and a change of actions. Gr uh, repentance is also not merely grieving consequences, but you hate the sin that you committed. You hate the sin. So when it comes to repentance, what, what are we doing? We're, we're recognizing that we've sinned. We go to that person, and we let them know whether they've rebuked us or we, we go to them. We let them know what we've done. We're sorry about it, and we do everything we can to make it right. And then in our own life, we, we do all that we can to kill that sin. Why? Here, here's why. We've got to have the gospel in view, and that's what I think Jesus, I mean, this verse four, uh, 1 through 4 is the gospel lived out, I think, by his followers. Because Jesus died for our sins, the Bible tells us. Jesus went to the cross, he died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He rose again on the, the third day to give us new life, that, that we have this new life. And he gave us the Holy Spirit so that you and I could live a new life patterned after Jesus. And so with those who have experienced that, when we sin, right, we gotta come clean, we gotta confess, and we gotta kill that sin because of what Jesus has done for us. And then so look what happens next. We read this, and, and here's a few things that happen just in our last few moments this morning as we look at this text. You're thinking a couple things. Wow, I don't want to do that, right? Or two, wow, that's hard, right? That's hard. Or three, maybe you're like, okay, but how can I practically, I mean, how could I do this, right? Well, listen to what the disciples said. Okay? Because you're in good company no matter where you're at. Listen to what they say. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, Jesus. Increase our faith. They struggled to believe that what the Lord had taught them was something that they could actually do for one reason or another. So that what did they want? They want more 
faith. And so listen to what Jesus says back to them, verse six. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, a mustard seed is a small seed, one of the smallest, you would say to this mulberry tree, what's a mulberry tree? A mulberry tree is, is a tree that could get as big as 35 feet, and it's very hard to take out of the ground. It's very hard to uproot. So he's saying, it, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted into the sea, and guess what would happen, Jesus said? It would obey you, right? Now Jesus is, is using this example here to show us something. Jesus says, Faith like a mustard seed is the type of faith that could do in the impossible, like telling a mulberry tree to be uprooted and then planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I mean, that seems like impossible, and that's the point Jesus is making. Listen, the issue here is not faith, right? I think that's the point he's making. The issue is not the size of your faith, what he's telling the disciples. So what's the point? I think he's saying is only a little trust in God. Simple faith in God. In his ability, what God can do can result in unbelievable change. And you can do what he has directed you to do in these first four verses. To rebuke and forgive when others sin against you. To guard your own life from sin and and repent when you sin against others. We can do this. Not because of us because I think the disciples I think one of the issues here is or or let me take a step back I think the issue here is their view of God right their view of God and first of all we got to have the right God and I think that's part of the problem here is is they're thinking we can't do this yeah <laughs> I mean I look at verse 1 through 4 and I'm like it, it's not only that I can't do it. Like, who wants to do that? I mean, if we're on, let's just, can we just be honest? I mean, who wants to do it? And I think that's part of the issue here. I don't really want to do this, but if I were to do this, Jesus, you're going to have to back up the truck and give me more faith, right? First of all, we've we got to have the right God in view, okay? This is not something that we can do. This is something that, that God works in and through us to, to do and leads us to do. So we've got to have the right God in view. And then when we look at our God, we see a God who can do the impossible. He can do what he just talked about with this mulberry tree. That's the kind of faith that, that guess what, you already have. <laughs> Did you know that? I think that's what happens sometimes, right? I forget this too sometimes. We forget that the faith that God has gifted to us right? When we come to salvation, the faith that he has gifted us, remember that's the type of faith that can move mountains, he says. And so I think we forget that. The Bible tells us, I don't have this on the screen, but Second Peter chapter 1, I think it's like verse 3 through 8, the Bible tells us that God has given us everything we need for godliness. Everything. And I think sometimes we forget that. And we lose sight of our great God. Too often we lean on what we can do or lean on what we want to do instead of trusting and believing what God can do. So we need faith in the right God. And we need to understand that it's not about this great faith in God that is required. 
but instead it, it is faith in a great God. When you look at places like Hebrews 11, and, and you know, we, we, we build that chapter up as this, um, these heroes of faith, the, the, the hall of faith, the hall of fame for those of, who had great faith, right? I think Jesus would stop you and say, look, at, hold on a second. No, no, no. Their faith, same faith you have. You see, the point of Hebrews 11 is how great God is, Right? And so I think we forget that sometimes. And so these disciples are like, okay, we, we gotta have more faith. Well, listen to what Jesus says, okay? Jesus says in verse seven through 10, we'll be done. He says, which of you, having a slave plowing or tending to sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down to eat. But will he not say to him instead, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and eat? Drink. He does not, verse 9, thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So pause there for a second. He's just given this relationship between a servant and a master and what it, what it looks like, okay? And, and he doesn't just give him reward or, or thankfulness just because he did what he was supposed to do or what he was commanded to do as his servant. So a simple little parable, okay? And then look what verse 10 says. So, you too. When you do all the things which you are commanded, verse 1 through 4, right? You say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. So here's the point. Point of the story, the parable there, is to teach the disciples simply that they are to do what their master tells them to do. Okay? Master tells us to do, we're responsible to do. So simply, what Jesus tells us to do, we're to do. It's that simple, right? So that means guarding your life. We're to do that. We're to guard our lives. Now, that might not be easy, okay? But we're to guard our lives. I think that means you and I got to take serious being in the Word of God, right? The Bible tells us um, that this protects us from sin. It keeps us from sinning. It helps us to know what right living looks like. Uh, it addresses everything in life. I mean, everything we need to know is right here. And, and, and I, th- I think too often um, we fail to, to be in the word like we should. And I mean, we all are there. But the Bible says this, that, that his word is truth. And, and, and the truth sanctifies us. It, it sets us apart for godly living. And that's what the word of God does. So when we talk about guarding our life, that, that's part of what it means. That we make sure, man, we're hanging out with the, the people we should be hanging out with, Right? That we're hanging around with people that man, are going after the same things we are, that love Jesus, that people that encourage us and, and challenge us when it comes to our faith. Um, I think it also means praying. And so there's a lot of ideas when it comes to guarding your life so that, that we would guard our lives. But not only that, that we would not tempt others to sin, that we would, repent, that we would repent when we do sin, that we'd rebuke and forgive when others sin against us. And so what Jesus is saying, these are things we should do, okay, as servants of him. So we're servants of Jesus, who is our master. That's the idea of the parable. And what he's saying is, this is not like no special thing. <laughs> like this isn't like, oh, well, you're in the graduate class and you can do this now. No. And he's not saying, like, when you do, the, do this, you get some reward. Like, here's your participation medal for 
participating in rebuking, repenting, and forgiving. I mean, that's not the idea either, okay? What he's basically saying is, hey, listen, this is your responsibility as a disciple. Simply do it. The point is, is, it's not that Jesus needs us to serve him, okay? We want to serve him, thankfully, for his glory, but he, he doesn't need us. And also, he is not indebted to us. Like, he doesn't have an obligation. Like, when we do things like this in verse 1 through 4, he doesn't have an obligation to reward us. So what he's saying here is, hey, listen, this is just what a disciple does. This is how he lives. Those who have been forgiven, they live out grace and forgiveness just like this. Just like this. And so, real simply, guard your life. Why? Because you're a disciple. Real simple. Also, he tells us um, not only to guard our life, but he also tells us um, not to cause another to fall into temptation or sin. Don't be the source. So why? Because we're a disciple. And when someone sins against us, what do we do? We rebuke them. And when they repent, we forgive as well. So why? Because we're a disciple. We're a disciple. We're a disciple. That's what we're called to do. Um, the disciples found, man, that's not easy. No. That's why we've got to be fixed on Jesus. We got to be fixed on our master. We got to be fixed on him. As we close today, I, I want us to remember that Jesus, our master, what's amazing about what he did is he became our servant, didn't he? He became our servant. He knows exactly what it's like to be sinned against. The Bible tells us that he bore all our sin so that we could be forgiven. And that's where all of us have to begin. That's where all of us must begin this morning. We need to come to Jesus telling him that we are a sinner coming clean. We need his forgiveness. We must turn. We must repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. And he becomes our master. We become his, his servant. And so if you're here this morning and you've never experienced that, if you've never become a follower of Christ, that's where we've got to begin this morning is trust him. Believe in him as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that he will forgive us of our sins. That's what Jesus does. And so believe in him this morning. Let us pray.